0: Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the collaborative task of discussing in-story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally collaborative four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me there's our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts and this time it's the worthy dalton hughes hello dalton hello there's also our semi-novice fan one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast and this time around it's the wise and willy allison fitch Seyfried. hello allison hello to all And finally, we have a special guest with whom we are doing this, our 100th episode, as a joint podcast with the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, the host of which is with us today, the incomparable Larry Van Mersburg. And hello, Larry.
1: Hello, Tony. Happy to be here to celebrate this amazing achievement, 100 episodes. We did
0: it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and we only have, what, 60, 70 more to go? Uh,
2: Well, you're still
1: publishing Target books, so you might have more.
0: So
2: we need to uh, slow down the rate of production so that we will never run out.
0: No, we don't.
2: (laughs) We really don't.
0: Now that we can see the train at the end of the tunnel. Tony,
2: we're like sharks. If we don't keep moving, we'll die. Well,
0: (laughs) yeah,
1: I'll probably die before any of y'all, so I need to get this done. Uh, You're younger than me, Tony. You'll be fine. Well, let's hope so.
0: <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, though, at the moment, I can't imagine that. Please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash BC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you have opened a portal to a parallel universe to store them all in. <laughs> They're there on the Enterprise with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wack, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank
0: you. Gosh, that's harder to say in a deep breath than it's ever been before. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com. Tom forward slash Y seven K M a S P R. In fact, we expect you to, we now take a break from our regularly scheduled discussion of target and technically target novels to look at a particularly influential fan work. One which fits uh, more or less between the Tom Baker season. We're currently discussing and the next one, even though I think it's actually further along than that, that work is the late Gene Aries fan novel, The doctor and the enterprise without further ado here are some fast facts
3: the doctor and the enterprise written by
0: jane airy and originally published as a fanzine in 1982 republished by pioneer books in 1989 as of this recording in july of 2021 this title is currently out of print 64 pages and by the way i'm probably wrong about the page count but there you go (laughs) gene airy is a fascinating fan figure She was born in Albany, New York in 1943. Her day job was as an engineer for Bell Laboratories at Lucent Technologies, where she was named a distinguished member of technical staff. Now that's impressive in and of itself, but she was also an avid writer in various genres, including fiction, playwriting, and science fiction journalism. Her published articles appeared in John Peel's Fantasy Empire magazine and in Starlog magazine, among others. She also wrote, directed, and appeared in plays both in Aurora, Illinois, where she lived with her husband and where Larry Van currently lives, and in Inglewood, Florida, where she moved in her later years to care for her ailing father. She served in various historical societies, one of which was based in Englewood, and eventually wrote and published *Englewood Fireside Tales*, Volume One, in 2011, which is still available on Amazon. She did co-write and publish one non-fiction Target book, though, with Laurie Haldeman, and that was *Travels Without the Tardis* in 1986, which allegedly—and I say allegedly covered several of the real-world locations used for the show. I say allegedly for reasons which Larry will get to when we get to his half of the podcast. She died in Englewood in 2016 at the age of 73. The publication history of The Doctor and the Enterprise is fraught, shall we say, which, again, Larry will cover in his section of our joint podcast. There is no back cover, (laughs) At least we don't have a back cover, so we don't have a dramatic reading of the back cover this time, which is just as well. It basically would just say the Doctor ends up on Starship Enterprise. I should probably tell everybody listening what the actual plot is, because (laughs) unless you went and downloaded a copy of this from our link in the last episode, you you won't know. Somehow the TARDIS... No, it's the other way around. Somehow the Enterprise ends up in the Doctor Who universe for reasons. (laughs) Don't ask me to go into it. But the TARDIS ends up materializing on the transporter pad. The doctor has been injured in some previous altercation. It's not really said what. He falls unconscious. Spock ends up accidentally mind-melting with him because he trips and falls and (laughs) touches him for some reason. And they develop a bond, obviously. And the entire story which is essentially in four parts, is the Doctor trying to help the crew of the Enterprise get back to their own universe while having to deal with Kirk's jealousy, I'm going to call it mm-hmm. that, and the fact that there are Tarns around and there are Daleks around, because of course there are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's jump straight into this, shall we? Let's talk about the positives of this first because there are some negatives, just a few. Mm-hmm. First of all, let's talk about Dalton and Allison's first impressions and then we can talk about Larry and my first impressions since ours <laughs> ours go back straight back to the 80s. So <laughs> Dalton, your first impression when you knew that we were doing this, what was your first impression?
3: Well, I I talked with you a little bit about me not being super familiar with the classic Star Trek. Um, I know the characters, but I haven't really seen very much of it. So I was kind of interested to see where they were going to go with it. And just from kind of reading it, I feel like this feels more like a Star Trek story than a Doctor Who story.
0: Yeah, it does. It very much does.
3: Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it really uh, comes as a bit of a shock, I guess, after reading all the novelizations we've been reading from Target that are very Doctor Who, especially after reading so many Terrence Dicks books back to back to back. This is kind of a whiplash. <laughs> but but I, I felt like it was really enjoyable. I, I enjoyed the Doctor's relationship with Spock, their little romance, I guess, <laughs> it, 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 it felt like, yeah. It is a bit slashy, isn't it? I was going <laughs> to yeah. say, yeah, there's definitely probably more slash somewhere, the two of them together. Oh, yeah. um, but I really felt like I got a feeling for Spock and Kirk. The Doctor's felt a little less like himself, but... Yeah, I, I still really enjoyed it, though, for all for what it's worth.
0: Okay. Allison, what was your first impression when you knew we were going to do this?
2: Well, in the first five pages, I lost an ordinate amount of time to a timeline crisis that I think the writer and the characters would all have sympathized with. Mm-hmm. So I'm <laughs> like, all right. How do I visualize the lighting design? Because I've actually started re-watching a bit of original series uh, because uh, much of my husband's dismay on the, what's available now streaming. The special effects are redone in some like early 2000s that's arguably worse than the original models. But the remastering <laughs> of the color is exquisite. And I had forgotten how good the lighting design was, especially the use of color. Oh, yeah. Especially compared to the era of Tom Baker that we've been reading, which I think not as much of just clips of, etc. So um, I I was kind of, I kept you know, having this sort of, sort of pseudo-schizophrenic crisis about how to visualize <laughs> what's going on. i thinking, all right, 66 to 69, but actually that would have been the Hartnell doctor, right? Not Trouton. I had to Google that. I um, <laughs> was the Trouton doctor, not Hartnell, certainly not Baker. And actually there in 1980, we're told, or the doctor meant to go to 1980, but it's in 2204. So it took me a while to calm down. With all that, uh, <laughs> but I actually loved that you sent Tony both versions. So you sent the a PDF of the I guess we would call it the not the original, but the original commercial bootleg.
0: I believe so. That's and the I scrolled yes. through
2: the illustrations. I was saying, oh, this is going to be some unpleasant medicine to take. And then you said, here's a text only link. Also, if you'd like to get that, and that started with Gene Aries' write up of the history of the publication, and it was a 1991 write-up that basically expressed some uh, dismay and disgust that it had been published, as I think she's called it, a very expensive book. (laughs) It said, you're afraid to reproduce it, but basically you can't make money off of it. Please include this disclaimer. And not everyone's on computer networks, and I thought it was dated uh, 1991, and I thought that was also rather historically delightful. I started getting broken the links on that one after the third section, so I actually started with the text only. So it was an interesting experience for the second half or the final third to go back to the PDF with the illustrations because I had purged them from my mind before that. (laughs) I have not talked about any story content whatsoever, but remember, I'm a history MA program dropout, so it was incredibly stimulating in both good and, and, and bad ways as I tried to situate the story within their respective universes in time, and then also the publication right. history of it as well. So uh, I was yeah. invigorated even before I got too much content. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, just
0: wait. Yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just wait. We will have to talk about where this sits in continuity because I, I have a guess but I'm not entirely sure. And I think Larry would probably know better than I
1: do on this one. Larry, you, when did you first see this? When did you first hear well, that, about it? It's interesting. I first heard about this in 1982 when I visited uh, my local comic book store, which was where my local Doctor Who supplies were, were being uh, done. And the owner of the store had stopped me and said, hey, you got to read this. And he had basically it was in a three ring binder, typewritten pages, which is how she distributed it back then, of the Doctor and the Enterprise. And he said, oh, you can borrow this and read it. And I said, cool. He said, yeah, you're going to love this, because Scotty's trying to make the sonic screwdriver work, and this is all happening, and Spock <laughs> mind melds. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Because in 1982, the Star Trek phenomenon was kind of resurging in our world. And so this the meeting of the two, so when I first read it, I was I was not yet in high school when I read this and I thought it was, you know, fantastic. Uh rereading it now, it's like, okay, now I'm a little more educated and <laughs> 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 reading it again and going, Oh, now I you know and, and of course understanding and uh, you know I'll go into more of this later of course, but I, I had I had listened to Gene Airy talk in nineteen eighty five and understanding more about the story and the follow-up story, kind of, okay, now is, is a much later in life reading this, I understand where she's going with it and what her what was in her mind when she wrote it. But it's an enjoyable story. I think it's a it's a great mix of the two worlds.
0: Okay. And the first time I saw it would have been in high school, and it would have been, in fact, I know exactly when it was. It was 1987. Mm. Because I had a fan friend who had a copy of it, And she loaned it to me. In fact, it was the copy that you sent us, the PDF of, Larry. And I took one look at the artwork and was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm out. (laughs) And she said, give it a chance, give it a chance. I was like, okay, I'll try. And I got about maybe a third or fourth of the way through. And I was like, ugh, because I have to admit something. I have never been a fan of fan writing even though I've done some myself.
2: <laughs> do, do you decline to proofread your own work?
0: <laughs> I do. <laughs> Which has led to many, many an upset in my life. But yes, I. it's just, there is a term in fandom called fanwank, mm. And it specifically refers to, let's throw this, 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 and this in here, because we've got these two universes colliding. And oh, gosh, gee. And that was the way it hit me back in the 80s. Reading it this time, I noticed it wasn't hitting that button nearly as much because, uh, again, I think I did the same thing that Larry did. I could kind of see where, what she was trying to do. But there were a couple of other bits that did hit that button, so my, my reaction to it's a bit mixed. Mm-hmm. I'm a little more open-minded to it now than I was then. So, yeah. I felt
2: like the voices for Kirk and Bones and Spock were immediately pitch-perfect. Yes. yes, the dialogue was just could have been lifted from any episode, just about of the show. Yes,
0: she gets the Star Trek characters absolutely right, but not mm-hmm. just
2: regurgitation. Like it was that style of wit and funny and and quickness, but it was you know original material. So that was actually substantially better than I was expecting.
0: Yeah, and that is something I think is an unalloyed positive about this book, especially the characterization of Kirk, because if you read. Any of the pocketbooks from that era of Star Trek fiction. Gene Airy has essentially captured what Kirk is like in those books. Whenever he meets a character that he thinks is a threat to the ship, but possibly an ally, he reacts this way. He always feels threatened. And that's perfect. That's if you were to read something by Diane Duane from her Romulan trilogy. You get exactly the same characterization. You get the, exactly the same characterizations of Spock and McCoy. It's it's really quite well done there.
2: Well, and the things that about the plot that I didn't like that were out of character were also the sort of out of character things you would see in the first season of Star Trek when they were still establishing the characters. I was thinking, Spock would never just you know accidentally trip and fall and mind meld. But actually, in the first season, that's exactly the sort of thing that would happen when they were still you know, still establishing how things worked. Yeah. And to be fair
0: to her in that, she does kind of use that in order to get us into the whole link between them. And yet she knows what the implications of mind melds are because she gives Spock that line about uh, he reacts almost in offended mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, that Kirk would ask what he's learned from that mind meld, because it it would be like opening someone else's mail and then having a third person ask you about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she's thought long and hard about all of these things. And I'd, I'd be very interested to know what other fan fiction she'd done before this, because I have a feeling it was mostly Star Trek stuff and not Doctor Who stuff. What are some of the other positives you saw on this?
2: I expected a lot more fan wankery, as as you would say. (laughs) As you know, I value a sense of disorientation when it's on purpose. So at first, we think the Doctor is in the usual universe in which the Enterprise finds itself. And we find out about a quarter of the way in, I think. Maybe it's a, a little earlier than that, that it's actually the other way around that the Enterprise has stumbled into the the Doctor's universe, I, I really enjoyed the a lot of the dialogue in the first third, and you know I thought the I thought the brain had no nerve endings, you know, yours does, not just a lot of like sort of quick quips like that, um, that were entertaining. In terms of the the jealousy you say was set up between Kirk and the Doctor, I think the obvious fan wankery would be first they fight and then they soon respect and admire one another, and you know it's like. Five percent fight, ninety five percent mutual backslapping. Maybe the hand drops a little low on the backslap. <laughs> <laughs> but instead we have like a much more substantial conflict where Kirk is naturally in control of every situation he's in, partly because of his magnetic charisma, and he meets someone else like that and he feels like he has essentially lost control of the enterprise because the doctor is just as magnetic and charismatic even though in a in a different persona. And he is always ahead of him in figuring out the situation because he's used to doing this sort of thing. So I thought that was a nice setup, but it would have been easy to do the one. I like that they had that setup of duality uh, between Kirk and the Doctor and then a different one going on with Spock and the Doctor. And I think either one of those would have been fine, but having both of them was actually something special about the book. Hmm.
0: So you'd say that those were definitely handled well?
2: Yes, and it, it... I think leaves you finding it interesting and thinking that there's more there to explore. It's very easy to do those kinds of parallels to death very quickly. And I I thought we we felt like there was a lot of depth there with Spock and the doctor's sort of interesting psychic abilities that are kind of sort of the things that are similar about them, the things that are different, but they don't, they also don't just, you know, 5% fight and 95% flap. There's a sort of a different dynamic in back and forth. So I thought that was the real strength and heart of the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I, I thought so too. In fact, it reminds me quite a bit of the Next Generation 2 parter Reunification, where Leonard Nimoy did a guest appearance as Spock, and he finally has a very short scene with Data, and you think, oh, there could have been more. It's like, no, that's more than yeah. enough. That's that's plenty.
2: But I actually still remember exactly that scene because overall, I thought that story was kind of a letdown because it was almost impossible for it not to be. Yeah. But that that I still remember that scene of, you know, by abandoning, you know, by turning your back on your humanity, you have turned your back on the thing that I most want is still something I remember all these years later.
1: Picard has been a role model in my quest to be more human. More human? Yes, Ambassador.
0: Fascinating. You have an efficient intellect superior physical skills, no emotional impediments. There are Vulcans who aspire all their lives to achieve what you've been given by design. You are half human. Yes. Yet you have chosen a Vulcan way of life. In effect, you have abandoned what I have sought all my life. hmm Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's kind of amazing that a message like that comes through in a, what is essentially a two-hour commercial for Star Trek VI. I'm sorry. What? It, it's essentially that. Is, the episode is a two novel. The episode is confused. Wow, she had two kids. No, no, uh, no, 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 no. Larry, you see what I have to deal with yeah, every day. I know. So that's we are but children. That comes up a lot in the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, anyway. What else? What else did
1: we like? I'll I'll just want to say that I thought it was amazing that Jane thought of putting a sociologist on board to specialize in cultures, which was needed later. Oh, yeah. Dorsey Stevens. Almost like a video game thing. Well, you got to get Lieutenant Dorsey Stevens if you want to go to Light Under.
2: (laughs) And it was amazing that she doesn't um, hook up with Kirk. That was actually also great restraint.
1: Uh, oh, I know right <laughs> well D- Dorsey Stevens is a, is a unique character, which uh, i 'll talk about her a lot more later because she becomes very important in the follow up story and uh, that she was introduced um, basically she is gene Aries' creation, and that is that 's important to know
0: I was wondering if she was possibly a mary sue now i didn 't see an actual Mary Sue character in this. Mm-hmm. But it, you you know what fan writing is like. Yes, the writer yes. is always going to put him or herself in it somewhere. Even if they're writing for Bantam books and they're doing one of the pocket books, they will put in a Mary Sue character, but she yeah, that that character is actually written with quite a bit of restraint. Mm-hmm. She's there for a reason and that purpose is served really well. Well and I
2: think serving as the author's point of view rather than the author's fantasy insert, are two different things.
0: Mhm. Agreed. Right. Agreed. Especially since the whole story is from Kirk's point of view, Mm -hmm. except when it switches. Yes. (laughs) It switches at a very odd moment, which is one of the negatives for me, because the the writing teacher in me looks at that switch and says, ah, no, (laughs) you don't do that. But we're still talking about the positives. Right. (laughs) I,
2: I, I actually don't immediately know what switch you're talking about.
0: When you get to, I believe it's part four, when do you get to part four, it suddenly switches to McCoy's point of view for a little while. And it kinda has to, because mm. at that point I'm trying to remember exactly what's happening kind in the in story. And
2: out of consciousness.
0: That's, yeah. it. Right, That's it. That's it. Right. Kurt cannot tell the story anymore because he's basically laid low <laughs> what a pun laid low with this virus that is uncontrolled psychic abilities mm-hmm. which is transmitted um sexually kind of <laughs> kind of sort of not? <laughs> yeah yeah like admin <laughs> privileges and certain
2: online discussion groups sexually yeah, transmitted.
0: yeah. <sighs> exactly Exactly. So it has to switch to McCoy's point of view there obviously. But it's just <laughs>
2: Well in terms of the fan non wankery or restraint, the obvious connection to set up between Spock and the Doctor would be them chumily discussing what you know, that they love humans despite the fact that humans are garbage or something like that. Talking about the non-human <laughs> experience among the humans. And I like that the first point of connection was instead uh, Spock's linguistic analysis of him calling himself the doctor and the doctor liking his analysis. So I, that was that, that's the kind <laughs> of choice in the story that is made several times that works very well to not go with the really obvious point of connection, but something a little more thoughtful and character based. Not necessarily the top note of the character, but some secondary characteristic.
0: Yeah, and it does do that particularly well. I mean, obviously, there is the obligatory Doctor Who joke in there, but uh, it's been so long since we've had one of those in a piece of prose that I'm.
3: Yeah, trying. and if they're even in, you know, Target books, then I can forgive it being in a fan fiction so yeah if they can get away
0: with it in so called canonical fiction (laughs) then we can excuse it when a fan does it even though every fan does it but I can't excuse capitalizing the "the" (laughs) in the doctor because his name is the doctor not the doctor and every time I read that I was like oh my god oh god
2: maybe she also (laughs) doesn't read fan fiction so she also does not proofread her own (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can't stand to read it but like you <laughs>
0: well that's possible what else
2: i fear that i am getting ahead of myself in terms of the revelations in store for dalton and i from the scholars here so kirk says he's lost 90 something crewmen and for all his command experience that he'll never accept that those deaths were necessary is that from the introduction to the star trek the motion picture novelization
0: Hey everyone, it's Tony from the future, breaking in just for a moment to say that Allison is absolutely right here, as it turns out. I didn't know this at the time of the recording, but after the recording, I went and looked in my copy of the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture. And sure enough, in the preface, Kirk indeed admits that he lost 94 of his crew during that first five-year mission. So kudos, Allison. Sorry we didn't know it at the time.
2: I mean, a reference to that? Like, did that come up before? Because I remember something that Roddenberry wrote in the introduction. It's from Kirk's perspective, something about all the people who died under his command. And it's, it's a oh. much uh, darker take than we see in the original series, although the original series is darker than we sometimes you know, remember. Right. And mm-hmm. I just, I didn't know in terms of publication... Which came first? I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: Roddenberry's novelization would have come first. Yes, I uh, I have a copy of it, but it's in the other room, and I can't go and get it. But I I know I know what you're talking about now, Allison, and I'm not quite sure that he puts an actual figure, but I think you're right about but it's the it's simil- Yeah,
2: similar contemplation about the absolute bloodbath that they have had on their five-year mission. So I think this kind of <laughs> en- encapsulates some of the things I like about the story and the things I don't like is at the end, Bone says something about how it's remarkable that he's come almost to the close of a five-year mission with the crew and the ship intact. Like, he didn't say they were intact. He said they died by the dozens.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well the current crew is intact. Well,
2: well, isn't every crew intact (laughs) until some of them die? I mean, no
3: (laughs) no one cares about the red shirts. Exactly.
2: They're all intact except for the dead ones.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Ninety of them are dead and eighty of them happen to be wearing red, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But yeah. All the credited cast are still alive, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All the guild members. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Now, in terms of timeline, this is at the end of the five-year mission for the crew. In terms of Doctor Who's timeline, Larry, where would you place this?
1: I wasn't sure if this was right after the invasion of time, before meeting the White Guardian... I, I don't think it's as early as Deadly Assassin, but he was definitely traveling alone and those are the two points that I could think of where that would hit. Also, knowing that Jean Airy grew up here and you know, lived here in the Chicago area, she would have watched Doctor Who on Channel Eleven <laughs> like most of us and probably had seen up to the Ribos operation because they kept repeating after after they Cut. did uh, Invasion of Time, they kept repeating it back to Robot. And
2: ladies and gentlemen, that is the premium content you come here for. I want to shout <laughs> Olé. <laughs> that was phenomenal, Larry. That, was... That, that
1: is That is your Patreon dollars
2: at Amen. work. Uh, <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> I think that's where it is, too. Mm-hmm. I, I think it has to be because there's a reference to K-9, mm-hmm. yes, but there's not a reference to Leela. Right. And there is a reference to him fixing K9
1: which would have been at the end of Invasion of Time. I believe so. So that's that's I think that's where it would be. And, and yeah, just remembering the time because the story, her her initial story was 1979, which if I remember right in 79, which is when you started watching the show, Tony. Um, yes. We were in an endless loop of Tom Baker episodes from Robot to Invasion of Time until they moved it to Sunday nights at 11 when they started with the Ribos operation. Right. So it so my guess is she hadn't seen it yet.
0: Mm hmm. I think that's it. I think I think that must be it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that she knows about canine nine and nothing that comes after that. So that means in terms of our doing this in story order, we're actually about two stories early,
2: which is fine. Okay. I can live with that. It's
0: our hundredth episode. Right. We we're allowed to <laughs> indulge ourselves. I thought that they were exactly. actually
2: going to Leela's planet when they talked about how the society had split. Into yeah. technocrats yes. and a more primitive people, but that it was a different planet. Is is this a completely original planet?
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, she appears to have come up with this uh, techies and norms planet all on her own because that's the other thing that feels much more like a Star Trek planet than a Doctor Who universe mm-hmm. planet societies like that don't really exist in the Doctor Who universe. (laughs) Except
2: the one that Leela's from, which I understand there are different things at work there, but psychics and a split society is the premise of that one. I mean, there are different evolutionary things going on.
0: That might have been a deliberate parallel. Mm -hmm. But as you say, when they get to that planet, it is a very different society. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
3: well, And even the situation with the Daleks having placed bombs in orbit that come down to destroy bits of them doesn't feel like the daleks like they would just destroy them they would say the hell with you guys die exterminate boom goodbye Yeah, yeah the toying with something
2: seemed i didn't expect that to be the daleks
1: well that kind of fits though her experience having only watched two Dalek stories. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so come to think of it. That kind of fits. I mean, especially if she watched Destiny of the Daleks was her her last one that she saw, then uh, yeah, yeah, then the bombs make total sense.
0: Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Oh, God, I hadn't, that's interesting Mm -hmm. to get the worldview of a fan who has only seen those Dalek stories. And maybe, I
1: don't know, would she have read the novelizations of the older ones? I have no idea, because there were not very many Target books in our area. In 1989, 79, 81, they were just starting to come in. I bought my first one in 81, and they had four titles in stock. And oh. they were kind of testing the water with it. And then a few years later, the, the floodgates opened with it, but not when this right. story was and written. And at that
2: point, would you have had to have gone to, like, a more specialty sci-fi bookshop?
1: Yes. You would have to go to a comic book store. And in Chicago, there was only two places that, sold Target books in the city for the most part. Tony, I don't know where you got your books from, but um, I got mine from the Comic Connection in Morton Grove, and they had, like, basically four titles in stock, and they started getting more as time went on. But there was Larry's comic book store in on Devon and Broadway, and he had a bunch more. He was importing them long before anybody else. But that was a couple bus rides for me at the time.
2: And By the time I right. moved to less than a mile from there, it was long gone.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He
0: he's been gone for quite a long time. And I got most of my books either from PBS's uh, pledge drives. What did they call those? Yeah, (laughs) pledge drives at PBS, or going into Bluefield, Virginia, Bluefield, West Virginia, where there was a large mall, and I think there was a little professor bookstore, Mm. and they carried them. Okay. But that would have been that had to have been 82 or 83, because I remember yes. that's where I got my copy of the novelization of The Five Doctors that came out a week before it came out on TV.
1: Right. Yeah. That, that would have been about the year. The 20th anniversary year is when, you know, Lyle Stewart took over. Uh, and that's when more bookstores got Target books.
0: And that's exactly where I got mm-hmm. most of mine. Either that or getting them from John Fitton in Britain. had mm-hmm. John Fitton in Britain. Where you got one a month for a subscription, which was awfully nice. Oh, yeah. But back to this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> back to this. Now that we know where to
3: place it. But that it.
2: is, you said it's not a usual target book. It seems like it would be challenging to discuss this story without discussing what the writer would have seen and yeah, read. Right. Yeah. and we've talked about you've talked about this before a lot with the official novelizations of you know different writers having access only to the script they couldn't even rewatch the episode
0: yeah exactly and yeah you're right that's absolutely germane to the as topic. opposed
2: to like picard which i thought was fabulous picard absolutely seems like the work of someone who sat down and watched original series through the end of next generation possibly some deep face mine as well and wrote that story with all that fresh on the mind from having watched it in the previous couple of years. Like even, I didn't even re- notice at the time that even in the music, the theme was the original Romulan theme music from 66. Yes. But yep. we take for granted now that if you have the time and a, a very modest amount of money, you can do that. It's possible. Mm-hmm. And at this time, yeah. she wouldn't have even been able to do that, even if she had an unlimited budget.
0: Yeah. Someone could sit down and do a fan work just from looking at clips online or looking it up on wikipedia they would not have to have sat through hours and hours and unfortunately some of that fan fiction reads like it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) this however doesn't which is why i'm really surprised by it because even even the star trek stuff come to think of it because she would have had to have caught star trek in syndication i'm not sure that Uh, Who knows whether she had a VCR at that time? I know we didn't get ours until like 82. Mm -hmm. So yeah.
2: The sort of zeitgeist of the late 60s through early 80s here is that sort of preoccupation with mind control as well as part of a (laughs) sort of uh, pseudo-sexual bondage power exchange kind of thing you have and it seems like a lot of genre fiction from mid 60s through early 80s that works really well for both of those series in that queasy way
0: yeah yeah and speaking of queasy does that mean we should transition over to the stuff that didn't work quite so well (laughs) yeah we've been asked by Allison to wait about <laughs> talking about the uh, elephant in the room so I want to get some of the more minor negative things out of the way before we press on to, into that big hairy ball of <sighs> <furriness>. um, <laughs> Right. there are no tribbles yeah.
2: for those who have not read it they're not no, literal hairy balls of furriness <laughs> that would have actually been a lot more self-indulgent
0: that's true that is yes. true in fact <laughs> well triples would have loved the doctor
3: oh my god Ah, uh, what did we not like <laughs> about this uh well we've already kind of touched on how weird and awful uh, the illustrations are oh, but god. those are not the writer's fault right no but it's no. still part of what we had to look at
2: <laughs> larry is subjecting us to content on screen now <laughs> He may never be forgiven. <laughs>
3: no. I, I just don't understand the decision for this really, like, caricature, boardwalk style of, of drawing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, by the way, you can buy the original artwork still on eBay for $25 a print.
2: <laughs>
3: oh,
1: but why would <laughs> that's why they're still out there. I would
2: say, I yeah. be surprised if you told me with the originals for $25.
1: Right. Those are the originals. Yeah. yeah they're, Those are the originals. Tom, Tom Holcomb.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, it, that's his eBay them. channel. Cause uh, <laughs> I had read that he had put them up for sale. So I went looking and they're still up there. Oh
3: so, God. It's, I know why. It's just, no, it's awesome. just such an odd decision. Like what, yeah. what was in their head that said, this is going to make people take this serious.
0: Well, I think you have to look back at the fanzines of the mm-hmm. time okay. and the culture. so it's
3: again kind of, okay,
0: yeah. Yeah, because uh, here's something else, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but fan art is either really, really good to the point of almost being professional, or it's like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and there's actually, there is a market for it. There is a market for this sort of uh, fan artwork. And God bless them. Via con that's exactly, if they like that, they should have it. But you're right, there is this strange kind of queasy mix of a, a really serious story, except for the party scene, but yeah. we'll get there. And yeah. this. Well, the
2: a classic conflict you get with comic covers oftentimes that are such a mismatch in the tone and the art style of the interior where if you bought the comic because you really love what was suggested by that cover you would not be happy with the content you like this isn't the same style this isn't the same tone of story this is what i thought i was buying and then also conversely people who might have been really interested in that book will look at the cover like no that's not the kind of thing that i like so if i had seen a book like this and thumbed through it i, I presumably i would have seen it like for sale by a person in a, in a box in an alley or like, you know, with a, a raincoat opening up and showing me, you know, bootleg fanzine <laughs> for sale or something,
1: I'm not sure. You're you're pretty accurate there, Allison.
2: <laughs>
1: Very close. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get the whole story of how the author didn't market it, but it was kind of appropriated. But... But I would have thought, you know, now I'm not really into that like kind of zany mad magazine style thing for something that's this long, like that might be a funny couple of pages or something like that. But it would have been something I actually would have been interested to read and I would have been put off thinking it was something totally different. And if I wanted to read something the art suggested, I would have been put off by this story. Yeah.
0: Yeah, as I was way back in the 80s. Well,
3: and I'm I'm looking back through it too. And it's like, they're not all horrible but of the drawings, most of the ones of Tom Baker are the ones that are so unappealing and like super cartoony. Like even the caricatures of Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Uhura, they're caricature-y, but they still kind of look like them. Yeah, that that caricature of Tom Baker is just so unnerving that. It's <laughs> it will like, us. It's so toothy and his nose is so <laughs> big. It just it it's it's such an amplification, whereas the other ones are still at least close to yeah.
2: looking like them
3: without being mm-hmm. goofy.
2: So I'm curious about the vintage because we had two completely different illustration styles. One of which was like a like Dalton said, like a professional boardwalk caricaturist who actually makes an honest living drawing caricatures and then some that were like a I say middle school level but it's about the level that I could produce that are like full figure drawings of some scene or whatever but then there's work that appears to be produced by a photoshop filter that I don't think existed until the <laughs> early 90s
0: no you're right
2: and that really confused me is how people were producing that in like '19. Eighty four. So, when, when were these abominations brought into the world? <laughs> oh,
1: 1984 is the first abomination. Actually, <laughs> <Well>, a little <laughs> earlier first than that. Woe. 80, 80, oh, 80, the second one was uh, coming quickly. Yeah, 84 would be the first time that appeared. Of course, it was a fan magazine when it appeared uh, in actual uh, mainstream. But before that, it was, it was underground. Yeah. So, there has been a lot of illustrations on this story. So my
2: confusion is about the timeline of when Aerie was distributing this and then when someone else, do I understand correctly, appropriated it and sold it without permission and that party yes. added illustrations?
1: Some of the original illustrations were used.
2: Okay. So which are the original illustrations? I didn't know there were. There are,
1: well, the original illustrations you haven't seen. Oh, okay. Ah. And, I, and I can't even show those to you because that, that where it appeared, it's and I'll, and I'll cover that more in the collector's side, but it's uh, it appeared in a, in a fanzine that is basically out of print and out of reach.
2: Ooh. I thought you were going to say they were so powerful that we couldn't survive yeah. seeing them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you. But there was also some drawings done by Gail Bennett, who, if you know the name, she did all the illustrations for Fantasy Empire yeah which were actually quite good and she she used to come to the uh conventions in the 80s and she would basically sit at a table and draw original artwork which was really good but that only appeared in one publication of this and then when it went to enterprise magazine that's when they hired this tom Holcomb guy to to draw the artwork and it that's the that artwork you've been subjected to. Oh, okay. So that's uh and, and that's not the worst of it yet. When Pioneer Books did it, they took it to the worst level. <laughs>
3: so.
0: Yes. You can actually see the cover of that one if you do Google search or if you go on Amazon here because it is right here. even though Yeah.
1: <laughs> and there are that's illustrations a... in this as well that are pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, severely bad.
2: The first thing that I thought was kind of a eye roll was the twenty the 24-hour mandated bed rest when they're all going to die. And yeah. uh, the doctor is inter- <laughs> it's like holding court in the sick bay with jelly babies. So yeah. that, that was the first thing that Steve contrived. And the next weirdness was the party, was what I would say, after we get to the third. <sighs> weirdness.
1: The party the, with the top hat and the tuxedo. Oh. Okay. Oh, Where they're God. also
2: and, possibly mm. going to die soon, but they have right time and
0: in which uhura sings the filk yes yes we need to talk about what a filk is (laughs) a
2: a filk (laughs) is do we need to talk to our doctors about it
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. Talk to your doctor about folk. Yeah, some of the side effects may include Athlete's Head and The Desire to Die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Filks tend to be songs that either have... It's the existing tune, and you've got new lyrics to it that have to do with a particular fandom. Or you have songs that are original songs that, I, I'm sorry, this is my opinion, are by and large horrible. <laughs> about of existing fandom <laughs> like the lady hawk songs i used to be subjected to by the same fan friend and i hated every single one of them about the mm-hmm. movie lady hawk yes yes the movie lady hawk huh. yes there's a whole goddamn cassette of songs <laughs> about fucking lady hawk oh, and it's just that's some fan dedication. yeah Yeah, in Mm. fact, um, Larry probably knows the artist that I'm talking about. I can't remember her name, but she basically specialized in doing filk albums, and I can't stand any Mm. of them. However, Uhura, at the party, sings a song that Airy quite rightly describes as never having been all that popular, called My Friend the Doctor, from the movie Dr. Doolittle.
3: Maybe what the
1: doctor tells me Isn't altogether true, but I love every tale he tells me.
0: I don't know any better ones, do you? My friend the doctor says the world is full of. And apparently, there are new lyrics to it that Uhura has made up, and I'm so glad. I have to say, I have to give the ghost of Gene Airy props for having the restraint not to put those lyrics in the book.
2: I agree. I, I thought that that did show remarkable <laughs> yeah. restraint. You think it might be the centerpiece for some people.
0: Yeah, I would have thrown it against the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have not have gone further.
2: Yet yeah, yeah, that, is, that is a thing that Ohura does in at least one episode. She sings, you know, these sort of extemporaneous um, Improv, she, she, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah she improvises songs about people who are hanging out in the lounge
0: that's true but that usually
2: true. it's they're hanging out in the in the lounge in less death-threatening circumstances
0: right yeah yeah i recall in the episode charlie x she starts singing about charlie and then he quite rightly freezes her vocal cords and causes spock's liar not to be
3: able to play <laughs> right it's like Oh my god. Yeah. It is the time. only
2: time of the episode where he's pretty sympathetic. <laughs> yes. <indeed. laughs> he exactly wants to right. his powers for good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Uh what else did we dislike?
3: Well there's speaking of just weird things that were put in there, the uh, the yo yo Championship, oh, The Endoran Yo-Yo Contest.
1: <laughs> the Endoran yes. Yo-Yo Contest. Christ Almighty. That was in the trailer, you know, more fun than the Endoran Yo-Yo Contest. Oh,
3: yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed like the Jelly Babies being used to create plot points and the Yo-Yos as well, with with Kirk actually having to use the Yo-Yo to turn off <laughs> the... The Dalek prisoner's the Dalek. machine. Yeah. Yeah. The Chekhov's yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov's
2: yo-yo, yes. yes. Uh, well, as you know, I think that all Star Trek stories should star bone. So I actually did like the part of the jelly babies that gave him opportunity to carp, you know, persuade the medical staff to join a feast of jelly babies. What about? Yes. <laughs> there are those? They're sort of flavors. <laughs> like him ranting. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I liked them less for themselves than for providing m- material.
0: Hmm. <laughs> yeah. You also get the obligatory McCoy line, damn it, I'm a doctor, not a butcher. Right. Yes.
3: Yeah.
2: Which I thought was Um, the only, like, real cringe reference, I don't know. Really? Yeah, (laughs) well, but I guess this wasn't a cliche yet by then. The, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a insert noun or occupation here. I guess, I think that was 20 years after that, when, Mm -hmm. once again, we had freer access to episodes, that uh, that became sort of a running joke, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, none of that. (laughs) right, right. So at the time, maybe it wouldn't have been quite so worn out.
0: Okay. (laughs) And I guess we should address the elephant in the room now. Because... Part of the plot involves Kirk getting infected by a virus which is essentially caused by unrestrained psychic activity. And it's caused... And
2: yeah, because he didn't get his COVID shot, right? Right. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> or he use a condom. Yeah, a mental condom. I wish I had one for that part of the book. Uh, he <laughs> looks lasciviously at a girl who looks lasciviously back at him, and that's what does it, folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that and gets what him into it. a boatload of trouble <laughs> and almost kills him.
3: <laughs> yes, yeah,
0: yeah, and it's a little too early to be an
1: AIDS metaphor, so yeah. So it could be. I'm not really sure. I probably I wish probably I asked not one. because of when yeah. when AIDS was publicly disclosed was a couple years into the Reagan administration. So um, I'm guessing no, but this, it it definitely, when I first read it, that went right over my head. But of course, when I read it again, I was like, Oh, yeah, (laughs) it it, it was like a what women want kind of thing where the thoughts were out loud and everybody could hear them and that kind of thing. That's, it was kind of, you know, forward for the time. I thought. Mm -hmm.
2: I found everything that happened on the planet having to do with the virus confusing not in that ooh i think that's a bad plot point but like i kept rereading things to understand the sequence of events and i still somehow didn't get that that was supposed to be the point of transmission mm, um, right. yeah. of the of the, but that's when he got it
0: yeah i think the only reason he gets it is because he doesn't get the inoculation from uh dorsey stevens i thought there right. were
2: other people on the enterprise who had gotten it He was supposed
1: to see her before going outside, and he didn't do it. Uh Right, because he's Kirk. (laughs) Right, yeah. I don't have time for that. (laughs) Yeah, and the doctor told him
0: to wait, and that was the other bone of contention. Right. Uh... What do we do with that?
2: So, that wasn't actually the part that I would say bothered me because I didn't even understand that's when he caught the virus. Um,
0: Okay, I think I know what did bother you. So, why don't you go go for it? Yeah,
2: (laughs) there's so much to choose from. I want to see if you guessed right. Oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
0: Well, there's a a prism
2: where everyone's horrified by something different.
0: (laughs) Well. There is the slap, and there is a bit of, well, not exactly victim-blaming, uh, because Kirk is accused of essentially mind-rape. And then his accuser turns out to have, how do, how do we say this, essentially foisted herself upon him, if that makes sense. Right. Even though that wasn't yeah. her place to do, and then she gets slapped for it mm-hmm. by one of the men, uh-huh. who essentially says, Know your place, woman. Kinda. That I had some real issue with.
2: Yeah. Once again, I yeah. maybe I, I found it challenging to understand some of the sequence of events here. Maybe that's because they didn't make any sense. So it's by far the rapiest thing, or not? It's no, it's not. Turns out to not be a rapey story. The the most messed up rape-themed story
3: uh, yeah. that we
2: have seen in. Any of these stories, and I think maybe even more than the original series, and that's saying something, because the original series definitely had some, well, you know, anyone would love to be raped by Kirk, overtones at times. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where it was this bizarre fantasy that I I generally vociferously opposed to gender essentialism. So I'm not proud to say, I looked back at the name to say, it says Jane, Jane, Jean J-E-A-N, did a woman actually write this?
0: I wonder that too. So,
2: yeah, it the story, if if I understood it, is that because there are two women, one of whom is the good one, one of whom is the bad one, in very unqualified terms. All right, so Nimona right. Nemona standing around uh, with some very lush and lusty eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're so thick and beautiful, but she still manages to see Kirk through them, which is really saying something, apparently. Uh, considering how voluminous and 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 lovely the eyelashes are, he thinks that she is a hottie. She looks at him and also uh, finds him quite hot. He is thinking sexy thoughts, and then suddenly she is horrified and scandalized at the extreme, uh, extremely explicit nature of the thoughts that we we are not privy to the exact nature of them, and is horrified and claims that he raped her Mm psychically that it is i understood it to be always that there was a mutual flirtation she's looking at him he's looking at her she's looking back in a very deliberate way he is thinking some r and x-rated thoughts and then she is horrified fabricates a rape claim out of whole cloth and reports it and he is sentenced to trial by combat yes. during which the most powerful oh. psychic on the planet who apparently people can also just order around at will hmm. mind reads the psychic girl on a planet with a lot of psychics on it they just thought at this point to maybe do some kind of investigation <laughs> figures out she was lying publicly shames her like it is the most it is like the worst MRA fantasy I've ever
3: read. <laughs> no, it's this, it's this
2: bizarre yeah. fantasy wherein there, there, it is a folk belief among many people that there is a whole common genre wherein a person claims to have been raped after they participated in some kind of consensual sexual flirtation or sexual contact. Mm-hmm. And what is so powerful in fiction is that the writer writes the whole story. So they write it in such a way that that is always a lie. Is if right. this is a common thing that happens. And it's like uh, murder clowns. There yeah. was a murder clown. John Wayne Gacy was our personal area murder clown. That is something mm-hmm. that has happened. But right. the frequency of murder clowns, and I know I've used this before on previous podcasts, so I, I apologize. But it is pertinent in the words of Lisa Simpson, Simpson, it is apt, I tell you, apt. Uh, the, the preponderance mm-hmm. of murder clowns in fiction uh, far outpaces the occurrence of murder clowns in our actual world, and right. I thought it couldn't get any worse, and then it got worse and then worse and worse as the story went on. But that was my understanding of the original incident. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I think you. I think that tracks right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think all of us probably got to that point and went, "Whoa, okay, did that actually need to be there at all?" Because one of the negatives I find about this entire book is that even though it roughly goes for about sixty-two pages, or at least that's how many pages it was in our PDF, it still feels overlong. Mm -hmm. If feels like it needs some judicious editing. It needs less incident, not more. And somehow that bit on the planet of the norms and the techies, or whatever they're called, doesn't feel like it is absolutely necessary. It feels like it's thrown in there just to somehow give Kirk his comeuppance for being such a ladies' man in the original series or them having written him that way. It felt a little bit like a take that. See,
2: I thought it was the opposite. I thought Kirk sees someone attractive who's flirting with him. He flirts back a little and then this terrible thing happens. I thought Kirk was supposed to be very sympathetic in that situation.
0: Right. right. But he's still punished in some ways for behavior that he exhibits all the time in the show
2: Mm -hmm. but not like he is in like for example the 2009 remake where kirk is that's true kind of sexually shamed in that way but he is embarrassed because he's used to being the hottest person in the room and someone is hotter like it's different than this yeah that's true right this is more like watch out for bitches they lie (laughs) <laughs> Which yeah. is different than zip it up, Kirk.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a point. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of. But then it got up. so much oh. worse. Yes.
2: When yeah. When Eldona, because <laughs> that's that's a name, not a title, apparently in this place, comes and visits him and explains that okay, we're aware that the eighth century BC Greeks left us the most misogynistic writings of the ancient world, right? Unfortunately, also the most prolific and, and well put together. <laughs> there is an Athenian writing where some some highborn man is boasting that the women in his family are so well-bred that they're embarrassed even to look at other men in their household, and this is what a respectable lady is. <laughs> this isn't quite that bad, but right. but we have this woman who is described alternatively as responding very submissively to Raoul, who apparently needs to order her around and other times is described as being a very powerful person in society, explaining that women do not make eye conduct with strange men and that strange men are mostly any man outside of the family. Hmm. And it completely contradicts everything else we see that character do. Yep. It but sure it's does. shown as a sympathetic moment of folk wisdom. Yeah. Wherein, of course, this is not to imprison women. It's for their own protection. Otherwise, they could easily be psychically raped. And... Also, I am having this private meeting with you, the stranger in this situation, <laughs> where I explain to you <laughs> our society, as <laughs> we violate the Billy Graham rule. I mean, it's, it's really such a bizarre mix of contradictory factors that remind me of, I am apologize in advance, you can edit this out, I'm going to talk about celebrity pastors, but I won't name names. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> about 10 years ago, a uh, celebrity pastor uh, you was know, famously caught in a men's room situation. with another man Mm -hmm. and another celebrity pastor commented that something the effect of I'm gonna take one for the team and say what everyone else is uh, not manly enough to say if that guy's wife hadn't let herself go he would never have had that affair (laughs) everyone's <laughs> like oh, God. okay actually that doesn't make any sense at all that would that would make no. sense with him hooking up with the woman at the clinique counter <laughs> <laughs> and this feels the same where it's supposed to feel like a moment of sort of raw real talk but it actually doesn't make any sense within the context of the story and that mm-hmm. actually frustrated me more than anything else
0: i can i definitely see that because you're right there's an internal inconsistency there that really isn't there in the rest of the book.
2: Well, But then it comes back at the end with the transmission of the virus. We're We're told that it's linked to puberty and Nimona is specifically twice referred to, once to her face and once behind her back, as having cooked up this entire thing because she is childish. She is still a child. She's being literally sent back to some kind of nursery, I guess because she doesn't understand how to be flattered by Kirk's thoughts. And it's it's, it's clear like an an insult. You're not ready for the adult world, you are a child. But then later we have this fairly technical explanation about how puberty affects the symptoms of the virus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make sense at all with the insults that are paid to her earlier. Like it's a very physical thing. I, I, I don't know if I don't understand the plot mechanics or if there's nothing there to understand
0: i don't think there's that much there to understand i i think that's the one part of this entire book where uh aries plotting falls apart quite a bit
2: but it's so detailed that i feel like i'm for, i'm just missing a point that he's trying to make that's probably horrible but i'm just not quite getting it
0: i didn't get it either in fact at that point i was like okay <laughs> i i let's just hope that this passes quickly and we get some dollars
2: Keeps it it. coming back again yeah. and again right. yeah yeah. Like my discussion of it, it just it keeps going.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely a negative of it. So certainly that. Any other negatives we can think of before heading into our own opinions of this in general?
3: Well, much much like I felt like the Daleks were just kind of thrown in to be a link to Doctor Who, I felt the same way about the Santarans. Oh, God, yeah. You know, you were talking about there needed to be a lot of editing it felt like the whole section with them being attacked by santarans was just a way to kind of talk about the santarans and you know we don't mm. even really interact with an actual santaran we just get ships that the enterprise very easily deals with
1: <laughs> yes yes
3: <laughs> even th- even though we're told that the santarans are formidable and they will destroy <laughs> whoever they need to to get what they want but it just was like why Why go through all of this discussion of how strong they are and how much they don't care about losing their own people and then the Enterprise gets attacked and <laughs> they blow them up and it's like, okay, on to wherever we need to go next. Yes,
0: and it mostly happens off-screen. In right. fact, yeah. every major incident in this book, there's a lot of talk about it, there's a lot of lead-up to it, and then when it happens... It's described in a couple of paragraphs, and then we move on to the next. Which thing. is,
2: in some ways, the most target book part of the story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we well, often seen some opponent built up as this formidable villain, very clever, very powerful, and then you know they're punched in the face, or someone throws a stick of dynamite, and yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. And I, I think you're right, Dalton. And I think the only reason why they were thrown in is because I agree I agree with Larry where the placement of the story must have been.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I, I can't say more than that, but I think there's a very <laughs> good reason why the Sontarans are in it. It's just... Uh... Yeah.
3: Which I think that is, too, why I felt like this was more of a Star Trek story than a Doctor Who story. Yeah, Because we get, we get so much more of the vibe of star trek Mm -hmm. we don't we don't really get any feel for anything from the doctor who universe yeah even though there's a lot of stuff brought up a lot of the technology you know talking about the tardis the doctor Daleks, on sonic screwdriver we get all these little references but it feels very superficial and it feels very much just like name dropping
2: yeah (laughs) well it's never the doctor's perspective it's Kirk's perspective and then Bone's right. perspective, and then back to Kirk, but never the doctor, and he doesn't have any supporting cast there.
0: Right. And I think right. it probably would have made more sense if the doctor had ended up in the Star Trek universe, because usually yeah. when you get these crossovers, that's what happens. One of our reviewers for Goodreads, in fact, talks about having read the the Legion of Superheroes ends up on the Enterprise D, and yes, the X Men also do at one point, and it's like, uh, why would you do such a horrible thing? And yet, when they do, they travel forward in time, but they're in the Star Trek universe. It's not, you know, the other way around around and this one doesn't feel like it is the other way around even though it's meant to be hmm. yeah yeah even the daleks seem odd
3: yeah
2: it reads yeah. like someone who knows star trek characters very well and doctor who not very well i say which sounds like exactly the situation based on larry what you've described she would have been able to watch
0: yeah She wouldn't have had nearly as much access to the Doctor Who universe at that time as she had to
1: Star Trek. And that makes some sense. That definitely makes
3: sense. So how many stories would that have been that she would have had access to?
1: Not very many. In in 1979, she probably wouldn't have had access to any Target books, but the Star Trek original series was in constant repeat, and only Mm -hmm. the early Tom Bakers up to Invasion of Time were being broadcast in our area. Yes. Yes. That and Star Trek had a
0: much more active fan and fanzine community in the United States than Doctor Who did. As a matter of fact, the fact that she did this is probably why we're still talking about it, because it was probably one of the first major uses of Doctor Who in a fanzine story, as far as Mm -hmm. I know. Yep, that's true. Mm
2: -hmm. How many, this was published in four parts, was it?
1: Yeah, it was broken up into four parts for publication in Enterprise Magazine across four issues. And that would have been,
0: I, I, I hesitate to say the leading fanzine for Star Trek fandom, but certainly it was one of the big guns.
1: It was a big uh, mainstream one, Yeah, so that's for sure.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> yes <laughs> yes yes but we don't run out of time because this is going to be a big one all yeah. right let's find out what our uh, goodreads people had to say as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or simply have a question about it read the book write a review or comment in our goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it you may get your review read out loud here the average rating for this book on goodreads out of five stars is 2.95 not terribly high the reviews from our goodreads group have again been edited for length sorry everyone but keep them coming in our goodreads group michael gives this book two stars and says back in the days before you could easily find just about anything you wanted on the internet we had to go to conventions and scour the dealer's room to find nuggets like this one (laughs) <laughs> Which is what a friend and mine and I did back in the day, agreeing to share a copy of this and the Doctor Who magazines we picked up. I don't recall much about this one other than it feeling a bit underwhelming and not really worth the price tag we paid to finally read it. I'm sure I could easily track it down today, but honestly, I'm not sure if it would be more or less enjoyable than when I first read it 30 or so years ago. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, also gives it two stars and says like most fan fiction that I've read, this could have used some proofreading and editing though to be fair the version i read was online and many of the small mistakes might have been transcription errors unlike most of the fan fiction i've read the writing style was pretty consistent all the way through there were no sudden changes of tense or descriptive passages giving way to terse script-like dialogue the star trek characters seemed to me to be portrayed accurately especially the libidinous kirk (laughs) for the most part the doctor was too though he was for example a little too keen for the enterprise crew to launch a preemptive strike against the Santarans. It's not that the Doctor wouldn't have done this, just that he would have done it a little regretfully. For all its faults, if this book had been properly commissioned, edited, and published, I certainly would have bought it as it's unlikely that that'll ever happen, not least because of rights issues, I'm content that I was able to while away a rainy afternoon with this entertaining story. And finally, Mark gives it three stars and says, after picking up the first issue of Star Trek The Next Generation Doctor Who Assimilation 2 from IDW Publishing, yes, that's the full title, I decided to take a trip back in time and read what is probably the first Trek Who crossover by Gene Airy. There are a dozen different printed editions of this book. I read the original text, which is available online, which was published in 1982. The verdict? Ms. Airy tells an interesting tale, but it's mostly a character study of Kirk, Spock, and the Doctor. The plot meanders quite a bit. The Enterprise finds itself in the Doctor's universe, needing his help to get back home. Kirk is suspicious of the Doctor's motives, but is won over. I like the story, but it doesn't really go anywhere, so this is probably only for hardcore Trekkies and Hoovians with some curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Larry, out of five stars, what would you give this?
1: Uh, I would give this uh, 2.5. Okay. And the reasoning for that is that it is it is a Star Trek story featuring the Doctor, where the title suggests it's a Doctor Who story featuring Star Trek.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and some of the issues that um, we've talked about here, too, you know, kind of led me to the same conclusions about, you know, when I read it as an adult versus when I read it when I was 12 or 13. So definitely a different story than what I had remembered back in the day, but not as great. And again... There's more to the story as far as why we got this raw version of it, and there's no editing and no polishing, but that's where I would give it. Okay. And Allison?
2: I know this doesn't sound accurate, but I have actually practiced restraint by not reading aloud my two pages of quotes from Bones that I have on here that I enjoyed. And (laughs) I am absolutely the target audience for outstanding Bones content. (laughs) So uh, this is another one where there are a lot of things that I really, really enjoyed. And then we have this bucket, I was going to say cold water in the middle, but really it's some untreated sewage um, where everything feels too high or too low. So I think about reading it as a, if I had read this first as a teen, how I would have been absolutely over the moon with so much of it, and in, including the very cheesy parts, and then would have just sort of hit in the face by this dehumanizing storyline of the, the young woman in the, the middle and, and towards the end of the story. So I think I'm going to go two, but it seems both way too high and way too low in ways. Uh, there is one prejudicially edited quote I would like to read aloud. Kirk's body heaved with a convulsive spasm, ellipses. The doctor was the one who held his body as a spasm subsided. ellipses. He's made it, Spock, McCoy whispered. You can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, For I. I as well. The, the McCoy
2: content, but also the, the, the two different kinds of parallels she drew between Kirk and the doctor that did not quickly and easily resolve and then also the mind meld after effects between the doctor and spock i thought were actually terrific storylines and then the main plot made no sense at all (laughs) yeah
0: that's true
3: (laughs) all right and dalton i'm gonna agree with alice and i would give this to there are some good character moments there's a lot of interesting stuff going on uh like i said in Earlier in the podcast, the, the bromance between the Doctor and Spock is... It's charming. I really liked seeing their interplay. But yeah, the the actual story itself just is too meandering. It's too... Uh, just. It, it needed to be focused. It needed to be edited. If there was more kind of a clear understanding of where this was going, I would feel better about it. Also, like I said earlier, the bits with the Doctor or at least things from the Doctor Who universe feel hollow. There doesn't there doesn't seem to be a lot of care placed in in those. They're they're really just there to kind of let us know that we're in the Doctor Who universe. But it it was enjoyable. I'm not expecting, you know, fan fiction to be the best pulitzer prize winning writing, but I I enjoyed reading this. It was fun. It was it was interesting to see the crossover. So, for what it is, I would give it a 2.
0: Okay. And as for me, I think I agree with the panel in general that it's not bad written fan fiction. As a matter of fact, it's some of the better written fan fiction that I've read. You don't have some of the markers that you have of truly awful fan fiction, such as Mary Sue character. Uh, and we get that designation from Star Trek fan fiction, as a matter of fact, directly. So that's how bad it could be. We don't have characters acting out of character, at least not on the Star Trek side. The Doctor doesn't feel right from time to time. He does get that very nice Doctorish, Tom Bakerish speech about the Centaurans, and some of the byplay is nice. But then the mind meld scene is particularly strange. It just doesn't sound like him. And it is much more of a Star Trek story than a Doctor Who story. It's not a bad Star Trek story, but it's a meandering one. And it does have some of those issues. So yeah, I'd say two out of five. Well, thank you, everyone. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Stay tuned for the continuation of this joint episode with the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. And next time, join myself, J.G. Macquarie, and Jenny Ingersoll for our discussion of Terrence Dick's novelization of Underworld, or as they call it, The Underworld i know it's kind of strange in the meantime if you liked what you've heard here like us on facebook at doctor who target book club podcast all in words of those spaces also feel free to follow us on twitter we're at dw target bc or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice including spotify if all else fails you and it inevitably will email me directly at dot gmail.com with target book club in the subject line so i don't ignore it thank you very much for listening stay safe and enjoy your travels Now here's Fraser Hines singing Who is Doctor Who? They
3: all say, who, who, who is Doctor
1: Welcome back to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the podcast that explores the collaborative world of Doctor Who collecting, those who collect, issues surrounding collecting, and of course, Doctor Who merchandise of all kinds. I am Larry Van Mersberg and your host, and I've been collecting Doctor Who since 1981. In the winter of 84, I had this really ridiculous idea to open a Doctor Who store here in Chicago and called it Bundles from Britain. And we were dealers at the TARDIS 22 convention in November 1985. And we're mentioned in a wonderful book that every collector needs on their shelf, and it's called Red, White, and Who? The Story of Doctor Who in America. Bundles from Britain lives on page 384. And if you want to find a copy of this book, there's a link on our homepage at doctorwhocollectors.com that will take you directly to the book. We don't earn anything from it, but we just want everyone to have it. And speaking of links... Two great resources for your collectors out there include timelash.com to keep track of your books, vinyl and CD collection for no cost, with special thanks to Dan O'Malley. If you're not sure what you have, or need to find what you have, look it up at Howe's Transcendental Toy Box at doctorwhotoybox.co.uk. David J. Howe is a great friend of ours and is a great resource for collectors. And if you're looking for great Doctor Who items at great prices, including Star Trek items, look no further than DoctorWhoStore.com. Alien Entertainment has what you need. Visit our website at DoctorWhoCollectors.com to see the newest offerings from Forbidden Planet. Your purchases keep us on the air. And don't forget to sign up now for Chicago TARDIS 2021, returning to a in-person convention, at least at this press release. Um, mm-hmm. Guests include Colin Baker, the Sixth Doctor, Simon Fisher Becker, the great Doria Maldivar, Uh, Sadie Miller, the daughter of Elizabeth Sladen, who is, of course, reprising Sarah Jane Smith in the Big Finish stories. And, of course, no convention is complete without Fraser Hines. More to be announced, so keep chicagotardis.com in your bookmarks and experience the best Doctor Who convention in the Midwest. I am very honored to be their collecting expert, so stop by and see the collecting panel in person, Or you can visit the virtual convention we did last year by going to the Chicago TARDIS YouTube or Facebook page or our YouTube channel playlist. And be sure to visit the live taping of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast that they do every November. Very happy to be part of the Target Book Club podcast's 100th episode in this special never-before-done, as far as I know, joint podcast. So my guests are... Tony Witt, Dalton Hughes, and Allison Fitch Seyfried. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having
0: us.
3: Yeah, thanks.
1: So we're going to talk about The Doctor and the Enterprise, which we just got done thoroughly reviewing. So I hope, uh, and of course, if you're my listener and you were confused by the first hour or so, don't be confused. <laughs> we, this was a planned event, and we're so far in the middle of a great discussion on this incredible book. Um, Nancy Jean Airy of course uh, we lost her in 2016 born in in 1943 um, lived mostly in Aurora worked for Lucent Technologies as we mentioned Uh, she was a very regular fixture in the 1980s Star Trek creation conventions which probably prompted the writing of this crossover so um, just to kind of Go backwards if you're not old enough to remember these. Creation Con, which is still operating today, used to operate these what we call Star Trek and the Token Doctor Who guest uh, conventions here in Chicago at the Congress Hotel, uh, and they were done from 1981 till about 1987, 88 or so. So you would actually go to the convention and you could meet you know Walter Koenig and Sarah Sutton, which was pretty random, uh, or you could meet Leonard Nimoy and um, you know. Somebody from Doctor Who. I think Michael Craze was here at one point. Patrick Troughton did one of them. Um, so there was a lot of mixture of the two worlds. And the world of Star Trek in that early 80s time was extremely strong. Um, there was Starfleet Academy, which they had uniforms. They had staff cars. They had ranks, insignia. It was a serious deal. So um, I don't know if um, if uh, my, my distinguished... Uh, panel here has experienced any of that tony did you do any of those when you were younger no
0: no in fact the earliest convention i ever did was something called oh god what was it called media West, and oh okay yeah and that would have been late 80s early 90s i believe but yeah i didn't meet an actual celebrity guest until i moved down south and that was in the, the mid 90s
1: okay gotcha allison or dalton any experiences with that
2: not until the 2000s for me okay
3: yeah no the back in north carolina where i grew up there was a comic book convention in charlotte but it you know mostly was um comic book uh, cosplays and things like that i didn't really uh, go to any of the meet and greets, but. Um, I wish I would have been more involved with it, so
1: <laughs> yeah it's it, it was it was quite something and of course when when I was active with bundles from Britain in the eighty four eighty five year I probably did thirty conventions that year, oh, wow. and most of them were these creation cons and they were very inexpensive as a dealer. I think the table was a hundred dollars and it was all for all three days. it was a really great deal um and so it was great to also um we stocked a lot of Star Trek memorabilia as you know, to probably boost business. We got into the comic books and the trade paperbacks and whatever was available at that time. And I do remember um, meeting briefly Jean Airy. Uh, she was doing a talk about uh, fan fiction. And I remember she talked about her her um, her stories and one of them was The Doctor and the Enterprise. Uh, the At this point in time, the book hadn't been, published as of yet but I think it was it was getting there but Enterprise magazine had been published at this point and of course uh, there was a dealer there that had a bunch of those so we negotiated um, buying those because those became very popular uh, at the time and the Star Trek Doctor Who worlds kind of collided. Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan was still a very popular movie at that time and so the Star Trek fandom was really big in Chicago. So a lot of that, and of course, we talked about this in the first part of this, but when she wrote this in 1979, uh, her access to Doctor Who was limited, but the access to the entire Star Trek series was pretty thorough. Um, The first time it was ever published, and I'll go right into um, the uh, fanzine, and just to educate the audience a little bit, a fanzine, of course, is a magazine produced by amateurs for fans of a particular performer group or form of entertainment. There are currently there were over 500 Star Trek and more than a thousand Doctor Who fanzines that have been printed since the 70s. And those are the ones that I could find out about Uh, many more. Some of them were completely underground. In other words, only available through certain connections. Um, For instance, in the Doctor Who world, uh, the many companions of Doctor Who fan club produced a fanzine. All of them are lost, including copies I had. They were lost in a flood back in 1987. Um, the Emissaries of the White Guardian from Skokie, all of them are lost. Um, there was a story called Doctor Who and the Masked Digressor, which is, which would actually be a great story for the Target Book uh, Club. It was written by award winning author Rhonda Del Bacchio. Oh, wow. Um, and Rhonda and I uh, knew each other. We met each other in the Many Companions of Doctor Who. She was a, a, a member of that club. And she wrote that story, and it was basically put out with binder clips and was sold for $2. So um, I actually reached out to Rhonda. She's looking through her, her, her basement to see if she can find a copy. Then she'd be freely willing to share it. Oh,
3: fantastic.
1: Um, I only know if, that, if, if any exists, she has them. The, um, there's a great fanzine site called the Doctor Who Fanzine Preservation Project. It's a university site. So if you Google that, you'll find it pretty, um, pretty fast. Um, and just to let you know that the very first... Fanzine was actually a Star Trek publication, and it was called Spockanalia. <laughs> <laughs> and it was first, yeah, it's a great title. It was published in September 1967 by members of the Lunarians. And some of the earliest examples of academic freedom were written on Star Trek fanzines, specifically the Kirk Spock slash. Mm-hmm. And that was a very popular genre for those fanzines. And they continued well through the 70s, mostly on mimeographed paper, um, usually given away, and they weren't sold. Um, It's a really interesting um, phenomenon. Now, this story, Doctor and the Enterprise, made its appearance in a fanzine called R&R. And just to, you know, again, R&R was a Navy term for basically fooling around with the local women ashore. (laughs) And it was eventually kind of, but it, it goes to the Navy, and that's true, you know, uh, as far as what they did. So the original series, they'll you'll see things like TOS, which stands for Star Trek: The Original Series, or TNG, The Next Generation. So if you're looking mm-hmm. for particular fanzines for those particular um, stories, you'll find those in those categories. So usually there's an anthology containing uh, this RNR was a anthology containing general stories and heterosexual stories, often explicit. At least two issues contained Slash, but not Kirk and, Spock, and occasional nonfiction. The fanzine ran for 23 regular issues and two special issues, and a third edition called The Shuttlecraft Incident was proposed, but it never happened. So many of um, Gene Airey's uh, stories appeared in that um, fanzine called r It is completely out of print. The author of, or the publisher of that fanzine suffered a fire, and all of his original manuscripts were lost. So that would have appeared in 1981. That's the first time that the Doctor and the Enterprise appeared in its full format, along with the sequel, The Doctor and the Lieutenant, Ah. which I'll talk about more in a moment. The next uh, time you see this is in 1982 on a fanzine called Zeta Minor, and it was a standalone publication of The Doctor and the Enterprise. It was a free publication. If you sent Gene a self-esteem, uh, envelope, remember those self address stamped Zazies. envelopes? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and you ha- and you included enough postage, I think, for a dollar twenty-five. You could get a copy of the Zeta Minor for free. Um, there are copies uh, floating around. I do not have one in the con- in the collection as of yet, but one is on the way. So I did locate one, and there were two covers. Uh, both covers were done by uh, Gail Bennett, and uh, they're really actually the artwork is much better. Uh, in the Gail Bennett, the uh, reprint was done in 1983. So in 1984, when um, basically that's the year, and, I, and the year I got inspired to, to basically go into business was the year that the convention started happening and um, fans started getting together. More fan clubs were being formed. And so uh, new media pu- uh, publications was Starting to publish magazines. There was, you know, Fantasy Empire uh, for the Doctor Who and the British uh, fans, and Enterprise. So, um, Enterprise uh, came out in 1984. This is the first issue. Um, I'll put pictures of these on the website, but uh, just for our panelists here, I'm showing a copy of the Enterprise. And this had part one of The Doctor and the Enterprise. Also, plans for building your own starship, in case you wanted to. Make a quick getaway
3: here. <laughs> that always comes in and handy. There's, some oh, great, yeah.
1: there's some great, there's uh, some great, in fact, the entire magazine is black and white on the inside and only the cover is color as was the printing back then. When I, when I talked to John Peel about fantasy empire, he said that was the biggest cost was keeping the magazine black and white on the inside. Cause any color pages were just cost prohibitive. And the yeah. magazine itself has a cover price of $3 and 50 cents. And of course, none of the authors of the or contributors to this magazine were paid. The money received from the magazine basically paid for publication. And that's pretty much how the fanzine world worked. Now, getting back to fanzines, um, I mentioned briefly that Jean Airy herself wrote a sequel to The Doctor and the Enterprise called The Doctor and the Lieutenant. And if you haven't figured out from our discussion, Jean Airy is Lieutenant Dorsey Stevens. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: She puts herself into that <laughs> world.
1: Now, Um, In R&R 13 was the first time the doctor and lieutenant appeared, and it was reprinted one time only, and it's not available online. It was reprinted in a fanzine called The Blue Guardian, and it was in issue number 13. Uh, Issues of The Blue Guardian are available, number 13, impossible to find. So, of course, I have one. (laughs)
3: i love it the blue guardian
1: and and the blue guardian is an adult oriented uh star trek slash science fiction doctor who um fancy hence the name Uh, in fact on, on the on the front cover it says some material contains sexually explicit scenes and may be offensive to some people not for sale to minors and by the way, I, I know I'm going to describe this, but just to show it to our panelists here, it's it's basically a cardboard cover with two staples. Mm-hmm. But not a brown so paper, paper was,
2: wrapper is might be appropriate, apparently.
1: Yeah, except it's blue.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and uh, just looking at you know when when I when I I, I got a hold of this many years ago, um, but it has uh, page 30, 39, the doctor, the lieutenant, and the doctor by Gene Airy, um, of course. to I'm going to keep the podcast PG, and I will not read aloud any any scenes that might offend people. But um, basically, uh, a kind of a, a go, you know a story. Um, the story basically is that Lieutenant Dorsey Stevens stows away aboard the TARDIS when the TARDIS leaves the Enterprise, oh. and they begin a sexual adventure together. Oh
2: my! <laughs> I would not have predicted that from the novel that we read. I would not yeah, have it's, <clears throat> seen it coming.
1: And so it actually speak. begins. Uh, the story <laughs> begins with Dorsey um, in her. In fact, this in this story, she kind of goes into calling her Dorsey, and it's told. It's being told from Dorsey's perspective, and so um, it starts with her in the room, and she's, you know, getting messages from Spock and things like that. But then she sneaks aboard the TARDIS, and the um, the artwork is actually very, very good. I'm just gonna. I'm, I'm, this one. I can actually show uh it's not too bad but this this is the artwork
3: i love it oh my
1: it's not bad at all and um it's it's uh and of course um the the drawing of the woman is actually uh nurse chapel from the series (laughs) so she was the she's the the original um first officer on the pilot episode of star trek too if you're going into the star trek world Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that that's the only place after the Blue Guardian, the Lieutenant, and the Doctor is only referred to in footnotes, and um, there is no text available online. Wow! Um, I have not read the story uh, in a long time, but I do remember that it gets it gets pretty steamy in places. And you have not places. made
2: the text available online either. It sounds like.
1: No, she did not. No, but sequel... you have not. You have this. <laughs> no, you have this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. It's not pin Allison. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just uh, my, from from the perspective of if uh, copies of the Blue Guardian copies of R and R, they're not terribly pricey. I mean, there are copies floating around for thirty forty dollars. Uh, the original price was probably about two to three dollars, which basically covered the. Um, and and I'm trying to think the the um, it, it's very early. I'll just kind of show up the text here a little bit. You can kind of see it's early photocopy. Oh yeah. Yeah, just t- it's like single space typewritten. So um, definitely not edited. And uh, it was, you know, it basically had a, I don't even know the name of the club that produced this. It just kind of became one that got circulated. There are so many of those. This was an underground fanzine. And this was a fanzine that was not part of that count that I gave earlier because no one had recorded it. Mm. So there are more out there than you could possibly uh, get to. Well, anyway, getting back to the original story, Doctor in the Enterprise, it was put in the first four issues of Enterprise magazine. I don't have all four I just have the first I have one three and four I believe just uh, one parts one parts three and part four they actually went to a photograph on the cover oh, nice And it's uh, it's that's why um, in the PDF that I sent out and of course the first actual published edition was in four parts. They basically just took, the material from from Enterprise Magazine and just put that together as it was, including the what happened so far, and as if you were reading it month to month, versus uh, in one place. So nobody mm-hmm. bothered to edit it. Now the um, hmm, the publication of the book is extremely um, contentious.
3: <laughs>
1: when when it was decided that. Um, you know, it was it was reprinted basically without her permission or her knowledge mm. Mm. until after it had happened, and it's it's the most actually the most reprinted uh, fan story in history that we could find. Uh, so it's it's published by a standalone zine uh, with her permission. The Zeta Minor one was with her permission. Um, the 1986 version was done without her permission, and that was. Um, the book that I sent you it has this cover, uh, it's a really bad cover. Yep. But uh the price of the book uh was 9.95 or 13.95 in Canada. Oh my god. That's and an So people getting second
2: jobs in Canada.
1: Yeah, absolutely. For I a mean, it's uh, Yeah, it's basically the same type of um thing that the magazines of the time. It was a color cover with black and white uh pages on the side, but all the material was pulled directly from if you were to hold this up to the Enterprise magazines, they're the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And by mm-hmm. the way, published by the same company, oh. New Media Press. Oh. Um, the, uh, the, the publishers basically did this without her permission. So um, basically, the uh, if I could just say that there was a quote in 1990, and I'm going to read her quote. Uh, it says, anything that is being sold commercially is not with my approval. And I'm the flaming author of the thing. <laughs> this is really ridiculous. I'm going to write the publisher, but I'm also going to ask Paramount and Lionheart to send a cease and desist as well. Oh, wow. Now, in, in the, at the time, Paramount Pictures owns the rights to Star Trek, and Lionheart Entertainment owned Doctor Who at the time. Uh, that's during the 90s. The Doctor Who was off the air at this point, and so it kind of got pushed to a third party. And Lionheart was actually in charge of um, distributing it to the United States and things like that. Um, but she also left out the Terry Nation estate. So um, because they use the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the story is fun, but it sure isn't worth 14.95. And how come they can get away with clear violations of the copyrights of two previously copyrighted universes without having their head chopped off? <laughs> Especially with Paramount's well-known tetchiness for <laughs> violations of their Trek universe. And she actually writes, Erg! <laughs> <laughs> Please let folks know that I have no part in this scam and my offer to send a Xerox to anyone who sends me a large SASE marked first class with a $1.45 postage on it. Don't pay the ripoff, folks, anything. <laughs> and this is a, a direct quote of Gene Airy that was published in a fanzine called Terrell Cell. So all the commercially published books are illegal.
0: That's interesting. It sounds like she, you rarely hear about a fanzine author sicking the companies on someone else rather than on themselves. Right. Because it's their well, own it's, work that she's exactly, sicking
1: and, and, um, So did she you know, face I've, any I've,
2: backlash for
1: that? Uh, no, she didn't. And neither did the publishers. Hmm. Oh, Although there were several cease and desist orders, and that, that'll bring me to the, um, the reprint in 1986. Um, they actually reprinted it, this time with this cover, with a red cover here, and the price is still $9.95. Oh. And they did it for a whole other year. Um, now publication was halted in mid-1987. There's no explanation. In fact, that's about the time when Fantasy Empire started running down. I think New Media Press was out of business mm-hmm. or getting close to being out of business. So that could be what was going on. But this, uh, this whole thing here in um, what she was talking about was another publisher got a hold of the manuscript and decided to publish it. And that was Pioneer Books. And that's this little gem here, uh. The Doctor and the Enterprise by Gene Ari with this horrible cover.
3: Yes. This one does have a
1: back cover blurb on it. Yeah,
0: that's the one. <laughs> has an you ISBN can on number. A- Amazon,
1: right. This is the one you can find on Amazon. And the original price, again, it's $9.95 or $13.95 Canada. So they didn't change the price. However, um, they heavily edited this book to try to avoid those cease and desist orders. And so what they did is they took all of the Star Trek proper names out of the book. What? So what I want to do is I'm going to read a little bit of text here so you can see what they did. They left the doctor in there. Wait a minute, the doctor said. I can see no error, said the scientist. You're a time lord. You're not a time lord. So the captain said to the scientist, referring to the engineer and offering the communications officer. Oh
3: my God! Oh God. So did it
2: they gets better. improve the plot the plot inconsistencies at all, or just with, with no? It's hands. the same plot. If they, while they're in there with not, a screwdriver and a plot. wrench, not that
0: much
1: editing. Um, but, but it gets better here when when we know the Daleks are attacking. They are now called the Tin Woodsmen.
0: Oh my God! Oh this. Oh no!
1: <laughs> Oh, welcome to Light Under. Yeah, this uh, is um the um they do they use have the to change in the checkies. <laughs> that was available. Yeah. But uh they don't use any proper names. They refer to Jim Kirk as the captain, uh Spock as the scientist, Scotty is the engineer, um the physician for Doctor McCoy, the xenobiologist for Dorsey Stevens. And she's not even a copyrighted character. No, but I don't think they wanted to tick off Jean-Ari at this point.
3: Yeah. <laughs> too because... late. <laughs>
1: it was too late. And she didn't get anything. from. Uh, and it's impossible to find out if how many books sold because Pioneer Books doesn't exist anymore as a publisher. They're now a store. <laughs> um, but a bunch of... You can find this... I think you won't pay more than $40 for a copy of this if you really want one in the secondary market. It's, and, and what I'm basically saying in the collector's scheme of things, yeah, these are great, but they're not really worth much because it's still available for free. So to counteract these illegal versions, she published the entire story online in 1991. Um, the original site she published to was through an AOL site, mm-hmm. so a little blast from the past for some of you. Uh, America Online had a couple forums, and she published her story there and then it moved to a free serve, and then several universities had it on their list serves. Hmm. And I think we're serving up a little too much for those who don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) No, I was just
2: thinking about, she published on AOL in 1991. I didn't realize that AOL was around in 1991. I think it was like 93 or
1: four, okay. I think it was around in 91. Yeah. yeah, the dialogue. Yeah. The, remember you used to get those disks oh, in the mail yeah. Yeah. constantly.
3: Yeah, I'm just I'm just remembering 91 I was 6 years old. The idea of the internet to me ha- hadn't even occurred oh, you sweet like, little I, child. I, well, <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't I don't think even in school we had access to the internet until I was in middle school in seventh or eighth grade.
1: That's probably Mi- about right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because the internet at this time was extremely limited. And um, I think, you know, unless you had a CompuServe account or an AOL account or a Prodigy account, you weren't
3: online. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's really fascinating, yeah, that, that this was available to people that knew where to find it.
1: Absolutely. And, and you can still find it today. Um, it's been re re, you know, basically restored in two different places and it was meant to be a free story. Mm-hmm. She never wanted this thing to be commercially available because of all the hoops she would have to jump through to get any kind of rights. And then after it was over, she wouldn't get any royalties for it. Right. Yeah. Because you'd be paying Paramount Pictures, you'd be right. paying Lionheart and the Terry Nation estate. Anytime you mention the word Dalek in something, Terry Nation gets money, even though he's been dead for how many years? You can take it with you. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You sure can. And the story made the rounds in the 80s as basically a passed around photocopied typewritten format with old style binding clips. I do remember that's what I had, except he punched three holes in it for the binder. I read it and I returned it back to the gentleman. uh, Jim Tierney was his name, uh, and I gave it back to him. Um, those versions are actually worth a little more than the published versions. If you still have a copy that Gene Airey sent you, you could get a few bucks for it because there aren't many floating around anymore because the idea was you read it and then you passed it along to somebody else, which is how the story got popular and why it was being talked about in so many different places. Um, Copies of the first four issues of Enterprise Magazine have the complete story. Those are starting to get harder to find. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, the, the sequel we talked about, The Doctor and Lieutenant, only published in uh, two places, the uh, RNR 13 and the Blue Guardian number 13. And, you know, that's that's the only place you can get that. Um, that basically is the that's why the publication history is so murky, because it was intended as a fan fiction in a fanzine. And there were, like I said, so many fanzines. My my favorite Doctor Who fanzine title, by the way, is No, not the Mind Probe. <laughs> that's a real one. Yep. Um. the The big one that's still out is one called Hootopia. Ah, oh, yes. Which you can actually download for free. Uh, you can do their. Uh, they're very good though. The artwork is is pretty incredible. And oh, wow. Um, it's it's an amazing thing. You can um you can pay. It's nine ninety nine Canadian. It's a Canadian group. Uh, or you can download it for free online. And fanzines, of course, throughout, throughout Doctor Who history. I remember going back to the 80s with the Celestial Toy Room from the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Ah, yes. And these were, um, these were mailed out. Uh, you basically got a bulk rate passage. This is from California. Um, and then, of course, uh, Tony, you might remember the Doctor Who Bulletin. Oh, yeah. have a few of those, in fact. Now this, the, uh, the copy I'm holding is the one from September 85, when it said in the 60s, the average length of a Doctor Who season was 42 episodes, but in 86, it was 14. <laughs> and a few years ago, uh, Chicago TARDIS, we did a panel on uh, Trial of a Time Lord, and I had this out on the table and somebody next to me picked it up and said, this is the original. I said, of course. <laughs>
3: do you know who I am? I am that old. This <laughs> should to be your do you name know who tag, I am, right. not yeah, Larry. But it's... do you
2: know who I am? Yeah, but do, you do you know what who I, I have in this basement? I have erotica you've only dreamed of.
3: <laughs> this is true.
1: Um, I, 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 um, you know, it's 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 funny when you when when I do, um, and and of course you know my listeners know this well. Following the story, when I've done the conventions talking about collecting doctor who and i bring a small sampling which is usually nine boxes (laughs) of things and of course i did when i did the virtual and if you haven't seen the virtual uh collecting panel it's out there on youtube um you can just search for that under chicago tardis and i had everything like set out on tables and i was going and and i remember at the end uh nick seidler and uh came out and said wow (laughs) i have never some of those things i've never even seen before i'm like well that that does happen i had a cop i had the doctor who give a show projector out on a table for the live podcast tony you might remember that. yes i do and and the two british right uh comic book writers came in afterwards and said i've never seen one of those up close (laughs) well that's why we do this We want to try to To, to get there And and of to course You know generators. Some Absolutely And to touch some, of, some of the uh, Some of our listeners Are collecting Star Trek And also You know Battlestar Galactica Was big And you know, we also carried uh, The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and uh, other, you know, spy books and things like that. There was a, you know, James Bond was real big. You know, um, you know, I, and I, you know when, when I was working back with bundles, we basically had all of this stuff and, and took it to various conventions. And, you know, we basically pandered to the audience. You know, if it was a Star Trek convention, we had a lot of Star Trek stuff. If it was a Who convention, we had Doctor Who things. If we were doing a mixed convention, we brought a mixture of things. Mm-hmm. And that's that's basically the the knowledge that we built up over the years, kind of doing that. And of course, um, you know, I'll I'll I'll, I'll kind of just share for for our for our panelists here the story. Of course, bundles from Britain. I started in nineteen eighty four. My second customer was Gene Smith, and he became my partner. Mm-hmm. And I ended up uh, in nineteen eighty nine. I decided to go to college and get a degree and you know grow up. And he kept going with it. And few years later he started chicago tardis based on our experiences in 1985 and 86 doing conventions
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so
3: nice
1: so i have a pretty good place on the ground floor (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) sitting in my room one night going hey i'm gonna do this and everybody said you're you're
0: crazy which is why people like us have to say thank you for your service (laughs) yeah yeah uh
1: and and i still i still relish the 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 catalog that was hand-drawn um, and you can find PDFs of this online, too, the Bundles from Britain catalog. Um, just And, of course, the, the fanzine we did with the Many Companions was done by the same artist. You know, so the, the artwork was, was part of it. It was really good artwork. And some of the articles we had were written by Rhonda DelBalchio, who's an award-winning author. Yeah. Uh, Tony, I think you've heard of her? I have Is, indeed, yes, I have. Okay. Yeah, she she was a member of our little group, um, along with Gene Smith and Bob Wettendorf and you know, we were just all a group of Doctor Who fans who got together and had a great time back in 1984, 85, and that's how all this started. So that's the, so basically, the Doctor and the Enterprise. Just in wrapping up that part here is, you know, it's a great story for those that want to read it. But I would recommend if you can seek out the original edition, that would be better. And try not to, you know, fortunately, the versions that were published are no longer in print, so. They're no longer a thing, but she vehemently fought against those publications for a long time, and not just that interview that she did in 91. She did talk more about that, as far as I know, from people that knew her. Um, she got very disgusted whenever she saw it in a bookstore or saw it at a comic book store or saw it at a convention. It, it really bothered her that somebody went and did that. And, of course, today, no one would think of doing that because the lawyers would be on you pretty fast. Exactly.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: sad right? Really, isn't it people spend all that time making
2: nice things and other people come along and break them
1: so that that takes us to the next uh the next part of uh our podcast here which is collection protection of course everybody wants to protect your fanzines and of course um blue guardian uh number 13 is eight and a half by 11 most fanzines are eight and a half by 11 or folded in half because that was the paper you had And if you wanted to do odd sizes, then the printer charged you a lot more money to do cutting and all that great stuff. So uh, you can actually go to bagsunlimited.com and you're looking for a regular magazine sleeve, which is eight and five eighths by 11 and an eighth with a two mil polyethylene material with a one and a half inch flap. And that will cover your fanzines for the most part. They do fit. However, the Doctor Who Bulletin is slightly longer, so you will have a little bit. The flap won't go quite as far, and I'll illustrate this on our website. Our website, by the way, is drwhocollectors.com Bags Unlimited. If you call them, 1-800-767-2247 and tell them you heard this on the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You won't get anything, but at least you'll get the name out. Yes, There's exactly. <laughs>
0: the money to be paid from your private purse. No! You spanked.
1: and and of course i always conclude with the most outrageous offer those of you out there i get these emailed to me on a regular basis and somebody had found a doctor who item that was priced a little too high or a little Mm. too ridiculous so we did a little research here and as um everybody might be familiar with the doctor who annual 2019 that was the one with jody whitaker on the the front yes and uh, panini books and so we have a bookseller here called mad for books out of Wolsingham in the United Kingdom. Uh, they've been a seller online since 2010 with a five-star rating. Um, they are currently offering this book in good condition. Uh, by the way, shipping is $62.84 <gasps> from the United Kingdom. Yeah, But the price they're asking for is $1,438.27.
2: What? Oh, my God. Is it attached to... Um via net to a flock of sparrows who fly it over uh, i think it should be probably in a
1: solid gold handbag um yes um, we we did um look into this price and it turns out that many of the items from mad for books are priced pretty high so we reached out to them we have not heard back uh to ask is this the real price or did you guys make a mistake with the decimal point (laughs) um a lot of times when we uh and just you know our, our our listeners are used to this but uh Uh, For the Target Book Club audience, when when I find an outrageous offer and I put it out there, people are looking for it right away. I post the link on our website. Usually the link disappears within 48 hours of publication. Um, We had a calendar for a million dollars in one episode. Um, But rest assured though, you are not out of luck with the 2019 uh, annual because you can still get it new on Amazon for $9.99 plus shipping, or if you're a Prime member, you get it for free shipping. Yeah. So uh, they really are uh, mad for books. So mad for books. So th- this is the copy I received one. from Amazon.com, do and uh, it still says uh, it's it's 10.99 on here price, but they have it for 9.99 on Amazon. So um, if you find an outrageous offer or a price that looks a little too high, uh, copy the link and send it to us at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast at gmail.com and you're Outrageous offer might just reach the podcast. So um, in kind of, you know, kind of wrapping up the whole uh, the whole idea here. So this was a wonderful uh, opportunity to celebrate uh, one of the podcasts that I promote regularly on my podcast, the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. I am a regular listener. I am caught up with the (laughs) Sunmakers. And that was a great story um mm-hmm. my my favorite uh, parts and i'll be honest I, you guys don't get to hear this usually from a listener but uh dalton adds a lot to this podcast i love his insights and uh, some of the notes that he comes up with really draw you in so that's really great stuff i love allison's one-liners uh, absolutely. Uh,
2: now, why would you the, assume that no one ever says that I'm funny? <laughs>
0: you don't hear it from us. That's for sure. <laughs> that no, is for no, sure. Right? Yes. <laughs>
1: I, I've listened to enough, and of course, uh, you'll also enjoy uh, Jenny Ingersoll on the program. Um, and when she's on there, she has some funny ones as well. And of course, you know your your in- incomparable host, uh, Tony Witt. He is our target book expert. Whenever the podcast, our podcast talks about. Target Books of any kind, the, uh, you know, the law is we include him on the discussions and he's been on all the discussions with us for that. So we, of course, are very grateful to uh, Tony and your knowledge of Target Books.
0: And thank you. I love being on the program whenever I can. And thank you. if it and weren't for listeners like you, we would not have made 100 episodes.
1: So definitely. Absolutely. And if you're we'll not eat. listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, and for some of you in my audience, this is your first time, you can find them almost anywhere you find your podcasts. If you're on Apple or Google or Stitcher Radio uh, um, and the various places, you can find them as well. Just go into the Google search engine, type in the Doctor Who Target Club podcast and a number of links come up um, and you can follow them there. Uh, We also, um, we support each other and this is, uh, One of the reasons why I when I when I came up with this thought and Tony was like, hey, this sounds great. You know, let's let's do a joint podcast, get our audiences involved in different things, because I always think, you know, hey, they're reading the target books in story order. Guess what? They weren't published that way. (laughs) 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 And and, and I'm kind of an unusual collector because I put my books in publication order because there is actually a a method to that because the logos are the same. The artwork is the same. The binding is the same. The back cover art ends at a certain point in 76. So there's, there's something to that. Also, when you read them in story order, you get a book that was published in 75 and the next one in 81. Oh yeah. So, and, Mm -hmm. and you've, talked about that I, I know very well and, and the stories and how they differ from the television series and I've been honored to be a guest uh, to a couple episodes here including this one I was on Day of the Daleks and Mind of Evil um, and that was an enjoyable time I've done I've attended a couple of the live tapings at Chicago TARDIS uh, and uh, you definitely need to check this out um, this is just, you know, I'm talking as a fan. Uh, nobody has paid me for this uh, placement. Nobody so. <laughs> could. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody can. Uh, but definitely uh, support uh, to support your local Doctor Who po- podcast. And I always, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of leaving out. I typically do bumpers in the middle of mine, but for this particular episode, I'm going to leave them out. But one more you do need to check out is the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast with uh, Eric Olbranson. Uh, it's a great you know, they basically do a random Doctor Who story, whether it be a book, comic book, audio, TV adventure, movie, or whatever happens to come up on his random random select you know, that's big finish. Uh the random thing he does, uh the random white selectotron. That's the big finish podcast. <laughs> so you gotta keep your podcast straight. But I hope you learned something and if you have any questions regarding fanzines, uh or where to find fanzines and things like that, my, my biggest uh thing there is to, you know, Give us, a, give us a shout at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. And Tony, tell us again where we can find the Target Book Club podcast.
0: You can find it anywhere you find podcasts, including Spotify. And you can email us at emperodalec at gmail.com and find us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words with no spaces, like a crazy person.
1: Well, special thanks to Tony Witt, Dalton Hughes, and Allison Fitch Seyfried. And I'm Larry Van Rostwergen for the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. And uh, we thank you for listening. And please
2: support both of our podcasts and enjoy your travels.